this is a, a wonderful event, but it brings us to the main event and the main treat of the evening, which is Peter Mandler's lecture. And uh, I welcome Peter Mandler, um, who joins us from the University of Cambridge, um, from his office in, in Cambridge. Um, his lecture um, is on the crisis of the meritocracy, how popular demand not policy drives educational cha uh, change. And when we talked about um, the, uh, this lecture um, long ago, um, I didn't actually uh, know that uh, your book would be coming out already now. So we, we uh, actually have the chance, which is, which is um, wonderful and a good coincidence that uh, the book has come out about a month ago, I think. Um, and uh, you will kind of ease us in and, and kind of tell us about um, what it's about before before we can actually then later look at it in print. Um, so Peter Mandler is um, a very distinguished historian, which uh, you, you might know that he was the president of the Royal Historical Society a few years ago. He is now at the moment the president of the Historical Association here in the UK. He's also a fellow of the British Academy. Uh, and of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, uh, the latter of which might also have to do with the fact that um, you are an American ex expat in the UK, but you have been in the UK for a very long time because you did your BA um, in Oxford, uh, the PhD then back in the US at Harvard. Uh, in 1991, you came um, to the UK to teacher and research at what was then London Guildhall University. I actually had to look that up. So this is nowadays um, part of London Metropolitan University. And then in 2001, you moved to Cambridge, where you are now professor of modern cultural history at um, uh, Gonville and Chaos College. And um, you are most well known um, for works on the cultural, social, and intellectual history of Britain since about 1800. And there are several different um, research uh, clusters there in your works. And um, I would say Victorian studies is one of them. The history of the humanities and social science uh, is another one. And now also the history of education. And if I uh, just name a few important books and very readable books too. Um, one is Return from the Natives, How Margaret Mead Won the Second World War and Lost the Cold War from 2013. Um, and uh, that is very interesting because it is about national character studies at the time um, and um, about anthropologists and psychologists um, who um, at a time of globalization and the Cold War, um, tried to um, work with, you know, or, or had an impact on international relations and, and vice versa. Um, the English national character, the history of an idea from Edmund Burke to Tony Blair, another book from 2006, falls also in this um, uh, same uh, area. Uh, History and National Life, 2002, another monograph, um, and then two monographs, two older monographs on um, the aristocracy, um, one on the fall and rise of the stately home, uh, 1997, 
And another one, and I believe that that was probably the PhD thesis, aristocratic government in the age of reform. Um, and this was about the Whig aristocracy in mid 19th century England. Um, and your work now on popular education or on the on the education of the population um, has come out of a series of lectures that you gave when you were the president of the Royal Historical Society. Um, which uh, and, and this series of lectures was called educating the nation and the fruit of all this work is what we will be able to enjoy now thank you so much for joining us peter i'm very glad that we have you with us and um i hand over to you uh thank you christina um i'm really delighted by this invitation um i have had warm feelings about the dhil for a long time it's been a real mainstay of the historical profession in Britain. Um, and if I could just um, briefly allude to one particularly heartwarming occasion, I had the misfortune to be president of the Royal Historical Society uh, at the time of the Brexit referendum um, and felt like many um, uh, uh, citizens of the world who live in this country, um, really rather distraught by the outcome of that referendum. And I was immensely reassured to have an invitation from the director of the GHIL to come um, a week or two after the referendum and have a little chat about the future warm relations between British historians and German historians. And I actually then had another invitation um, from the uh, higher education attache at the French embassy. And I'll, I will, I'll never forget the, the, um, the moral support that we got um, from our um, friends and partners in Germany and, and France uh, in that very, very bleak time. Um, and I'm, um, so I take this occasion as a reaffirmation of that relationship. I want to uh, talk this evening about the, the history of education. I, I think this is a subject that's not been done justice by mainstream historians in this country. Um, and maybe partly for that reason, it's a subject which generates an awful lot of popular myth. Um, and that may be true in many countries. I know it's true in this country. For example, the, the prevalent myth in this country that grammar schools are responsible for social mobility or the myth that comprehensive schools are responsible for social mobility. Actually, uh, neither is very important to most people's experience of social mobility. Or the myth that Britain has had a terrible technical education system and ought to imitate Germany. I will draw a veil over that myth and I don't pr pr propose to deb debunk that myth tonight. I could go on. Why does the history of education generate so many myths? In part, because we all play a role in that history. We all have our own story. And in a familiar psychological frailty, we tend to project our own story onto others, making ourselves more representative or more exceptional than we are. But also in part, because education does matter so much, uniquely so in the past few generations, when for the first time in history, everyone has been guaranteed a secondary school education before the war, only about 20% of teenagers had any exposure to secondary education. Um, and now a majority are experiencing higher education, whereas before the war, that privilege was accorded to a bare 2%. And the other day, we reached a 50% participation rate for the first time. So only in the last few generations since the war, our grandparents and parents, has everyone been exposed to more than a minimal training in the three R's. And it does matter. Educational institutions have taken on many of the functions formerly carried out in the workplace and in churches of taking children and making them into adults, 
of helping young people make the transition from family to society. In asking them to perform these socialization functions, we put a lot of pressure on educational institutions. We put them on the front line of social change, asking them to deal with all the social problems that habitually infest the teenage years, to grapple with issues of which older people are barely aware and to prepare young people for futures we can hardly predict. So our hopes are heavily invested in them as they are in our young people. And we need stories about them to tell us how they have done and how they might do better. Thus the myth-making. Um, today, I'm actually going to address another myth that I haven't yet mentioned, one that will allow me to say more uh, about how much people have come to care about and to invest in education over the past 70 years. This myth revolves around these four dignitaries and many, mother, many others of their ilk. They're the politicians who are held to be responsible for getting us this mass education society we now live in. Rab Butler at top left, the architect of the Butler Act, which made secondary education free and compulsory for all after 1944. Uh, Tony Crossland at top right, who abolished the grammar schools, um, or at least most of them in 1965, thereby creating the possibility at least of wider progression to O-levels, A-levels, and higher education. Margaret Thatcher and Tony Blair, you hardly need introduction to them. Uh, Margaret Thatcher, who apart from snatching the milk in the early 1970s, is supposed to have made possible those, that further progression through her reforms in the 1980s, raising standards in state schools. And finally, Tony Blair, who set that 50% target for higher education that we reached earlier this year. They're all formidable figures in British political history, of course, undoubtedly all took a close interest in educational provision, but the myth I want to attack is that they were responsible for the extension of education to more and more people. I want to suggest instead that they could only respond to popular demand for more and more education. The motive force that is, was not the heroic initiatives of educational reformers, but the incessant and growing expectation from the electorate that the state would provide more and more education over time. Even when they thought they were leading or shaping this demand, most often, I will argue, the politicians were trailing sadly behind it. So you can't blame or credit Tony Crossland for abolishing the grammar schools, which he didn't do, or Tony Blair for making half of all young people go to university, which he didn't do. The British people have only themselves to blame or credit. And that's the case I wanna make in the next 45 minutes or so. Let me first sketch out some reasons why I think popular demand has counted for so much in determining the amount and shape of education on offer and why this was especially so in post-war Britain. In some respects, Britain was like most European countries um, in the middle of the 20th century. It was only newly democratic. That is, adult men didn't all have the right to vote until 1918, adult women not until 1928. We didn't have one person, one vote here until 1948. Britain's state education system was almost entirely limited to primary education like most countries in Europe. As I've said, only 20% of the population had any experience of secondary education before the war. And so primary and secondary education were essentially two separate systems, state primary education for the masses and secondary education, much of it fee paying, much of it private for a small elite. There was no ladder of opportunity from one to the other or even thought of one. Higher education was available to only to a tiny handful and not even universally used by the social elite. Only one interwar prime minister went to university, for example. On the other hand, Britain was not, as is sometimes said, backwards in these respects. That is, it was like the rest of Europe, but it wasn't backwards. 
It actually offered more years of compulsory state education before the war, nine from five to 14, than any other European country. Although, as I've said, for most people, all of those years were undertaken in primary schools and were not intended to lead any further. You can see that um, Britain is um, just ahead of France and Germany and um, Switzerland and Austria um, um, in making nine years of um, education compulsory and Scandinavia and um, just behind the southern the Mediterranean states further behind still poor Portugal uh, was the real lag, laggard in only requiring three years of compulsory education. And this is in 1938. After the war, all countries expanded educational opportunity greatly. And there was a degree of convergence so that other countries caught up to some extent, although Britain is still ahead now requiring 13 years of education or training uh, to age 18. That's again, um, um, high in Europe. All countries eventually provided secondary education for all and all countries expanded their higher education too, especially in the 1960s. It was clear across the developed world that a modern nation needed an educated population to ensure equal citizenship in countries that all now have universal suffrage, to provide the skills for an increasingly post-industrial economy, a knowledge economy as it became known in the late 60s, and simply to equip people to live in a modern society that increasingly required formal knowledge and abstract thought. All governments across the developed world, right and left, authoritarian and libertarian, on both sides of the Cold War, provided mass education, though they gave highly varied reasons for doing so. Now, some special um, circumstances peculiar to Britain after the war um, did, I think, give popular demand more weight and more visibility here in this drive to mass education. First of all, state education in Britain had since the early 19th century always been provided with a tender concern for local, uh, basically religious sensibilities. A liberal state like Britain was more cautious about imposing on people's freedoms of religion and expression, in this respect at least, than bolder, more centralized states than Prussia or France. So state education was firmly assigned to local authorities rather than central government. There has been no national curriculum um, until the 1980s, and then it really only lasted for a few decades. It doesn't exist any longer, uh, effectively. Uh, I mean, there's something called the national curriculum, but it's not compulsory for most schools. And local authorities and even individual schools had considerable freedom and still do to determine what was taught when and to whom. Then there was the special circumstances of the mid 20th century of the war and its aftermath. The Second World War built up considerable popular expectations here of a new deal in terms of state provision for social security, guaranteed minimum living standards, universal benefits, the package that we call the welfare state. Now popular support for the welfare state was uneven. Trade unions were suspicious of income controls and other wage related benefits, preferring free collective bargaining. And so there was no minimum wage until the 1990s. The most overwhelming support was for a universal entitlement to two services, health and education. These services uniquely were seen as not only important to ensure fairness and greater equality in society, but virtually as a right of citizenship. Therefore provision in health and education had to be universal and increasingly had to be as equal as possible while still in the case of education being delivered through local authorities. It took time after the war for these expectations 
of health and education to build up. We're so accustomed to treating the National Health Service as a national treasure that we forget how it took time to root itself in the affections of the people. And there's some actually wonderful work being done by early career researchers like um, um, Andrew Steeton um, and a group of researchers at Warwick and Sean Pooley um, who've been uh, focusing on how the NHS uh, uh, how people, how this, the mass of the people became acculturated the NHS and came to expect of it what they expect today. The same applied even more so to education. Primary education had become well accepted but um, um, uh, before the war, but changing schools at 11 and continuing to 15 or even 16, which were the novelties of the post-war period, took some time to catch on. The connection between secondary education and citizenship only gradually became clear. Secondary education was where you learned to be an adult, a functioning member of society, an equal citizen in a world where civil equality now mattered a lot and people um, attached a lot of their self-respect to it. You can see this growing awareness of the centrality of education and the way it rose up the political agenda, especially at the local level in the 50s and 60s. At the beginning of the 50s, education was mentioned in only about 30% of parliamentary candidates' election addresses. And, and, and at, this, at this point, each candidate um, issued a separate manifesto as well as the national manifesto. And those local manifestos were um, very closely um, regarded by the electorate. And education only appeared in about 30% of those uh, election addresses in the early 50s. By the end of the 50s, it was mentioned in almost all of them. And ever since, health and education have remained uniquely twinned at the top as the most important political issues in nearly all electoral surveys. Then there were reasons why most people's expectations of education were also growing by leaps and bounds in the immediate post-war decades. The importance of secondary education was that it had up until this point been basically the posh people's kind of education, the kind that led to clean jobs in shops and offices for the lower middle class and to managerial and professional jobs for the really posh. For the two thirds to three quarters of the population in manual occupations who expected their children to continue in those occupations, secondary education hadn't been seen as necessary or even possible. These expectations had begun to shift even before the war as more people, especially mothers, aspired to clean jobs for their children and thus to secondary education, though few as yet achieved it. After the war, when secondary education for all became a civil right of the welfare state, new expectations, not only of more equal education for all, um, but of more equal life chances, more social mobility as we'd now say, these new expectations began to gain in salience. And in fact, after the war, many more people were socially mobile into, out of the manual working class into the intermediate social classes, a hell of a lot of more people. And this is just a, a graphic about the occupational distribution of the population and how it shifts from only 10% in the top two classes, the professional and managerial classes in 1951 to 40% by 2011, and the shrinkage of the working class um, that goes along with it. And actually this graph, this is um, for um, men, um, it, all adult men, this actually understates the, 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 the speed and extent of occupational change up because that's happening at the, in, in amongst the young. And for them, um, it, it's happening much more, obviously much more rapidly, more dramatically than for the whole population. Um, it's not only that most people um, uh, after the war were empl employed in manual working class occupations. 
More importantly, they had grown up assuming they would be employed in such occupations and their sons would. But after the war, that pattern and those expectations begin to shift. The manual working class began to shrink, the professional and managerial classes began to grow, and a similar though less pronounced shift was um, evident in uh, amongst employed women. Among those born just after the war, more than half of all people experienced upward social mobility in their working lives, that is, from their parents' occupation to their own occupations over the course of their working life. Other forms of mobility, apart from occupational or social mobility, were also common. Even those who remained in working class jobs were physically mobile, mostly to the suburbs. Our image of post-war tower blocks in urban situations is misleading. Over half of all council estates were in suburban locations. And parents were now much more likely to expect and to want their children to lead diff lives different from their own. What has been called psychic mobility, a movement away from a belief in a static towards a more dynamic vision of society. This optimism about the possibility of progress, personal and social progress, was closely tied to expectations of education. People associated in their own minds the promises of security and equality offered by the welfare state, the provision of a more and more equal education by the state, and the chances of improving their own and their children's lives socially and economically. This despite the fact that social mobility probably had little to do with educational opportunity, rather it had to do with a shift in the labor market in Britain as in many other countries, away from manual labor towards service sector occupations. And this graphic just, uh, this is based on the work of um, Lindsay Patterson and Christina Ianelli. Um, this um, shows um, basically that people with every level of education were almost equally likely to be socially mobile, upwardly mobile, and very likely in almost all cases, especially among the generations born in the 40s and 50s. I've always thought this is one of the most revealing and yet misunderstood features of British society. Social mobility as experienced by most people doesn't have much to do with education, though it may become more important at the top end and more recently. And this is why the, neither grammar schools nor comprehensives have been really crucial to most people's upward mobility. Whatever kind of education you had, your chances of being upwardly mobile were pretty much the same and also pretty high. But these post-war generations wanted more education regardless of what direct contribution it made to their occupational outcomes. They wanted it because it was a civil right, like a free and universal health service, and because it seemed basic to a welfare state that promised security and prosperity for all after decades of growing inequality, the Great Depression, and the sacrifices of war. These popular demands never meant that education was purely a force for equality, but they did help to counteract the effects of a more stratified educational system in exacerbating inequality, which is why I title my lecture and the book I've just published, The Crisis of the Meritocracy, because I want to argue that popular demand for more equal educational provision has for the last half century or more put a check on the unequal effects on education of meritocracy based on differential educational achievement, which might otherwise have been the dominant effect of education on the social order. Let me now turn to my main argument, um, which is that these new expectations of a universal education service were actually more responsible for determining what the state provided than any initiatives of politicians. Politicians were on the whole responding to demand pressure, not stimulating it or creating it with increased supply. I'll offer three examples of the power of demand. First, in determining the transition to comprehensive education, a process well underway before Tony Crossland put his name to it in 1965. 
Second, in determining the transition to mass higher education since the late 1980s. And third, in determining not how many people studied, but what they studied, the balance between arts and sciences in schools and universities over the whole of the post-war period. So first to comprehensive education. Here we can see in the two decades after the Second World War, a loose framework set up by politicians, starting with the famous Butler Act in 1944, gradually transformed to suit the needs and wishes of parents. The Butler Act itself did very little, apart from require local authorities to transfer all children to secondary schools at age 11, and then to provide free and compulsory secondary education to 15. Butler said very little about what kind of education children should get and in what kind of schools, so long as they were free. Unlike other features of the welfare state, like the NHS, which were introduced by the post-war labor government, the Butler Act was a product of the wartime coalition and represented a bottom line consensus. It was less controversial just to leave the details up to local authorities. But it was also, as I've said, part of a longstanding policy that in a free society, central government shouldn't dictate the terms of education to parents. On the other hand, local authorities weren't necessarily all that much more responsive to parents themselves. They were run by educational administrators who had their own views as to what kind of education was appropriate and by penny pinching local politicians who needed to keep the rates low. So it took quite a long time for local authorities to do anything beyond the bottom line, which was to ensure that all children transferred to a secondary school at 11. For many that transfer was merely a fiction. All age schools survived into the 1960s in many places and children simply moved from one part of the school to another at 11, and they called that primary to secondary. For most, the easiest and cheapest solution seemed to be that favored by central government, which was the so-called tripartite system of three kinds of school for three kinds of children. Grammar schools for the academic child. Most local authorities already had grammar schools for about 10 or 15% of their population, and um, that was easy to simply carry on. Uh, technical schools for mostly boys aiming at skilled trades and so-called secondary modern schools for the rest. And this system really only required local authorities to build new secondary modern schools for the majority. Tests at age 10 or 11, the so-called 11 plus, selected out the academic and the technical children, which left about three quarters of the population to be educated at the new secondary modern schools. The secondary moderns were either repurposed primary schools or cheap new schools using temporary accommodation to house separately the children formerly kept at primary school to 14. They had little obvious function, little obvious secondary character. They offered uh, few exams or qualifications and they remained institutions in search of a mission for their entire lifespan. But it quickly became clear that they did not meet parents' expectations and so their lifespan was short. For one thing, it was apparent already in the 1950s, in the early 1950s, that the 11 plus was desperately unpopular among both middle class and working class parents, but especially among the latter, because their children were much less likely to pass the 11 plus and gain a grammar school place. Before the war, most parents had little experience or expectation of secondary school for their children and had been relatively unaffected by grammar school selection. After the war, it became nearly universal. It affected everyone. With every passing year, there was more dissatisfaction when the state measured up its nation's 11-year-olds and found 75% of them wanting, consigning them to what were widely viewed as second-class schools. As early as 1954, when mothers of eight-year-olds born right after the war were asked what kind of secondary school they wanted for their children, 
two thirds said grammar school. And yet only about 25% of those mothers would get what they wanted and they were mostly middle-class mothers. This was not a tenable situation. As one civil servant said at the time, it was bound to collapse if, he said, parents' wishes were to be regarded rather than educationalists or politicians. Now, local authorities paid little attention at first to this swelling demand. They were scrambling to provide any kind of schooling for all 11-year-olds and were neither able nor willing to contemplate providing the most expensive kind of school, the grammar school, which they could only provide for a small minority. Nor did expert opinion think that parents' wishes should be regarded. The widespread expert view was that only a minority of children would ever be capable of benefiting from an academic education. There was no point in asking parents about it. And after all, as even the left-wing labor minister of education, Ellen Wilkinson put it, coal has to be mined and fields plowed. Theirs was a static vision based on an eternal manual working class and a minority educated middle class. If only Ellen Wilkinson had thought a little bit about really how long were fields having to be plowed. Uh, of course, she might not have been expected to realize how, uh, how, uh, how few people were gonna be needed to mine coal soon enough. Now, two manifestations of popular demand that mounted across the 1950s made it impossible for local authorities or experts to ignore the problem by the end of the decade. These were known respectively as the bulge and the trend. The bulge was what is now more often known as the baby boom. Family size had been shrinking earlier in the 20th century as the slump and war caused people to aim at fewer children to support. But the birth rate suddenly leaped ahead at the end of the war and continued to surge through the early 60s. The bulge was itself evidence of the new optimism that most people felt about their future prospects, thanks to economic growth, but also to the security provided by the welfare state. And although, of course, it did not have immediate effects on demand for education, it takes babies six or seven years to grow up into primary school children, at the same time, educational planners knew immediately that the absolute number of secondary school places would have to start growing exactly in 1956, 11 years after 1945. That meant new schools would have to be built. Would these schools be segregated tripartite schools or would they be comprehensives? Schools, one school for everyone. And it was very hard for local authorities of any political complexion to contemplate new tripartite schools. The children of the bulge were children of the welfare state. Their parents were having more children because they had those high expectations of social security and social progress. Would three quarters of them be happy to be relegated to second-class schools that offered no exams and few other qualifications and no chance of progression to O-levels or A-levels and even possibly higher education? They would not. As even the conservative education minister of the early 60s said later, I cannot from memory recall a single conservative with any interest in the subject who really favored building new grammar schools and new secondary modern schools side by side in an expanding housing state. And this demand pressure for new schools on an unsegregated basis was exacerbated by a second source of demand, increasingly manifest by the late 50s, what was called the trend. The trend was the growing demand by parents and students among the majority educated in secondary modern schools to stay on in school after the compulsory leaving age of 15 and to sit exams. Uh, the O level sat at 16 in the first instance. The tripartite system had only provided places for at most a quarter of all 16-year-olds, but many more than that were showing themselves able and willing to stay on and sit exams. 
Demand for O-levels was growing at 10% a year in the late 50s and 15% a year in the early 60s. In other words, it coincides again with the baby boom. A precisely similar trend was evident in Scotland, where by the late 50s, already 35%, not 25%, but 35% of 16-year-olds were sitting the equivalent um, exam to O-level. Not only were the assumptions of the tripartite system challenged by the trend, it was obvious that the 11 plus was only selecting a portion and a shrinking proportion of the cohort evidently able to take and pass academic exams, but also popular pressure for exams was overflowing the banks of the grammar schools and manifesting itself in secondary modern schools where they weren't supposed to be, be provided. I mean, more and more kids were, were, were being given O-levels in secondary schools, even though uh, they weren't supposed to uh, provide them at all. And they, weren't, they certainly weren't supposed to be uh, able to take and pass them having failed the 11 plus. Local authorities responded to the bulge and the trend in various different ways, depending on their local politics and also on how much leeway the Ministry of Education would allow them. But all Welsh and Scottish authorities and three quarters of English authorities were already determined to abandon the 11 plus by 1963. Most kept their existing tripartite schools, but began to open new schools on a comprehensive basis. Others, for example, Swansea or Wiltshire or Middlesex, just decided to start offering O-levels at their secondary modern schools so that the difference between them and the grammar schools began to disappear over time. The most popular response in conservative authorities was to move to a two-tier system, which allowed them to keep both existing secondary modern and grammar schools. The two-tier system, sometimes called the Leicestershire Plan, after the conservative authority that pioneered it in the late 50s, abolished the 11 plus and kept all pupils together in the same schools until 15. These junior secondaries based on the secondary moderns were effectively comprehensives. Then anyone who wished to stay on after 15 could transfer at this later stage to a senior secondary school where they could sit O-levels and A-levels. These senior secondaries based on the old grammar schools were able to expand to meet the demand for O-levels however much it grew. You may recognize this two-tier system as persisting today in many parts of England, including parts of Cambridgeshire where I live, where students stay in comprehensives to 16 and then proceed to a sixth form or a further education college. The point here is that although the 1964 general election brought in a government ideologically disposed to comprehensives, and in 1965, an education secretary, oh, sorry, that was Rab Butler um, running ahead. Um, in 1965, it brought in an education secretary, Tony Crossland, even more ideologically disposed to comprehensives. By that date, nearly all of them had already done so. And Crossland knew it. The circular, in fact, um, that, that um, he issued um, spelled out the various routes local authorities could take to comprehensive education based on the plans they were already uh, making. Thus, the Leicestershire plan was approved, and so were 11 to 18 comprehensives, as already planned in every Scottish authority. Of course, famously, a small number of conservative authorities resisted this circular, and some of them continued to hold out until Margaret Thatcher rescued them in the 1980s. And it took a while for these local authorities that did reorganize to do so. New schools had to be built, often old schools had to be closed, much as in other countries. Sweden, for example, moved to comprehensive schools over almost exactly the same period, though not until later to age 18. Sweden at first only allowed comprehensive education to 16. So in that respect, Britain was following a similar trajectory, but slightly ahead. And by the end of this 20 year period, over 90% of state educated students across Britain 
um, were enrolled in comprehensive schools, and that figure hasn't changed much in the last 40 years. This transformation of the school system came about not because of Tony Crossland and his circular, but because after the war, parents had high expectations for their children and higher expectations of the welfare state, and because between them, the bulge, the trend, and the welfare state caused the great majority of local authorities to begin the transformation before 1965. Let me move on now more quickly to my second illustration of the power of popular demand, which takes us forward in two senses, forward to higher education and forward to the 1980s. To bridge the gap, I should say, of course, that the bulge, the trend of the welfare state, which helped to bring about comprehensive education from the late 50s, almost immediately thereafter put immense pressure on higher education as well. The planners who knew just how many 11-year-olds they would have to cater to in 1956 knew just as well how many more 18-year-olds they would have to accommodate uh, after 1963. And by then they also knew that the trend to more O-levels was leading irresistibly to more A-levels as well as uh, candidates for university. So more universities were already being planned well before the famous Robbins report of 1963. There's Lionel Robbins, its author, um, and before it reported to government on the future of higher education. The famous plate glass universities of the 1960s um, are sometimes erroneously called Robbins universities, although they were already half built or like this one, East Anglia, were already open at the time of the Robbins report. I mean, they, have, they would have to have been. If the number of 18 year olds demanding and expecting higher education in 1963 was already way beyond the capacity of the old universities to supply. From the point of popular demand though, the Robbins Report was important because it defined the so-called Robbins Principle, which was that everyone who was qualified for higher education by passing two A-levels or three hires in Scotland and wanted a place should be guaranteed a place. That is, um, government had already learned that you cannot resist popular demand. If people are qualified for and want higher education, they should be guaranteed it. And this has embedded in policy more or less up to the present day, the idea that politicians shouldn't seek to engineer the provision of higher education, but should simply respond to demand. And Robbins made a series of projections uh, based on the bulge and the trend about how many places would be needed for the foreseeable future. And although these graphs only go up to the 1980s, some of them go up to the present day to 2020, and we're only now reaching the outer limits of Robbins's very confident long-term projections. Robbins's projections were more or less accurate for the rest of the 60s and the bulge, the trend of the welfare state, as well as the provision of more places in universities and polytechnics, ensured that the proportion of 18 and 19 year olds who progressed to higher education um, grew from under 5% at the beginning of the 50s to almost 15% at the end of the 60s. And you can see that upward curve very much as predicted by Robbins in the first part of the graph. Then something very interesting happened. Robbins's optimistic projections started to go wrong. Instead of continuing to rise, the proportion of young people going to higher education leveled off from about 1969, not just temporarily, but for 15 or 20 years. Why that happened is a subject I could devote, I could devote a whole lecture to on its own, but happily for you, I won't attempt to. I will just say that this leveling off in the growth of higher education was also as much, if not more, due to popular demand, or in this case, lack of it, as to political initiative. I mean, there were some policy decisions taken to try to restrict the um, uh, provision of higher education in the 70s, but on the whole, what caused higher education to level out 
in the 70s and 80s is that 18 and 19 year olds stopped wanting it for a wide variety of reasons, having to do mostly, I'd say, with the very uncertain social, cultural, and economic prospects of the period, very much unlike the 50s and 60s. Well, I'd be happy to discuss this fascinating subject further in Q&A, but for the time being, I want to focus on the return to growth in the late 80s to show again how popular demand flexed its muscles, whatever the politicians wanted or said they wanted. During a period of financial stringency in the 70s, politicians had been reasonably happy to go along with diminished demand. It meant having to pay for fewer places at a time when it cost government a lot of money, not just to provide the places, but to pay the fees and grants for the people who filled them. But when Margaret Thatcher came to power, her government showed a more ideological disposition to limit participation in higher education as a matter of policy rather than simply as a response to demand. Or rather, it was not so much Thatcher and her governments as her education secretary and ideological mentor, Keith Joseph, to whom she delegated education policy. Joseph was on record as regretting the Robbins era expansion of higher education, echoing Kingsley Amos's famous diagnosis that more is worse. Part of his recipe for economic recovery was to ensure that only educational investment that contributed to economic growth should be permitted. Thus, he was determined not just to prevent further growth and participation, but actually to drive it down from its current levels, setting a target of 12% participation amongst 18 and 19 year olds lower than the current rate that had crept back up to about 15% by 1984. As we'll see, he also tried equally unsuccessfully to determine not only who studied, but what they studied. Unfortunately for Joseph, his term in office coincided with an end to the long period of suppressed demand. By the mid-1980s, more 18-year-olds were seeking to progress from A-levels to university, and perhaps even more significantly, many older women who had forgone higher education in the 70s were now clamoring to enter it a little bit later. Again, I don't want to spend too much time here explaining why growth resumed in the 80s, a question almost as complicated as why it slackened in the 70s. But changing attitudes to women's roles played a big part. As you might have noticed in this chart I showed earlier, even among young people, women's participation was starting to grow from around 1980. And as early as 1990, their participation rates would match men's. But other factors involving and mature women who don't even feature on this graph start to grow very rapidly um, um, from the 1980s, early 1980s. But other factors involving renewed faith in education were generally must also have played a role. Joseph was very cross about this resurgence of demand, especially as it manifested itself mainly in places he didn't consider value for money, polytechnics, which he tended to view as second rate, and in social studies subjects, which he viewed as tantamount to socialist studies. But as soon as improved demand did begin to register, and especially as middle-class students who wanted places in universities found they could only get them in polytechnics, then Joseph's colleagues in government began to get uneasy. The civil servants were warning them that there were insufficient places for those eligible and wanting them, the Robbins principle, and that therefore that principle was being violated. More significantly, the parents of those middle-class students who were being turned away from universities began to protest, and their MPs, mostly backbench Tories, began to feel the heat. There were open revolts in 1985 when Joseph thought not only to deprive their constituents of places, but to charge them by introducing tuition fees. And so Thatcher replaced Keith Joseph with Kenneth Baker. Baker had his own proclivities. Not more is worse, but definitely technocratic. He wanted to invest in science and technology. 
but he knew what his political job was, and he duly turned on the supply tap. Participation rates soared, as you can see from um, almost the, precisely the moment that Baker comes into office, um, and especially among women, at a pace even more rapid than in the 1960s. In fact, making up for the stagnation of the 70s, you'll see that if you draw a line from 1950 to 2000, it's almost a straight line, so that the uh, plateau of the 70s and 80s is more is made up for by the acceleration of growth in the uh, late 80s and 90s. When the Treasury uh, tried, and you can see there's a little bump towards the late 90s, uh, when the Treasury tried to restrain student numbers because it was hemorrhaging cash, the political retribution was almost immediate. The Tories polling on education slumped. Tony Blair skillfully took up the cry of education, education, education. And after his landslide election in 1997, he set the 50% target, which we've now reached. Of course, different governments found different ways to pay for this expansion. Thatcher preferred cutting costs. Blair devised tuition fees. Cameron went for, high fee, uh, for a high fee regime. But it's striking that none of these policies, even though they had a direct impact on students' experience and debt levels, made any difference to the ever-growing participation rate. And this is the participation rate as it heads towards 50% from 40% between 2006 to 2018. Um, during a time when tuition fees are going up, um, lots of other things are changing, um, but um, the demand for more education in increases incrementally year on year. And politicians have essentially learned the lesson um, not to uh, try to uh, to um, impede demand or to deny places to people who qualify it, uh, qualified for it, as they've learned since the 1950s how quickly and brutally they get punished if they seek to halt the trend. I'll end very quickly with my third illustration of the power of popular demand, not in determining how many people uh, study, but rather in determining what they study. And I think this works particularly well as a case where the actual trends are nearly the opposite both of what people think they've been, this is the myth, um, and that's because most people think the trends are what politicians say they should be. Um, the actual trends are nearly the opposite of the myth and opposite of what politicians have always desired, with popular demand consistently foiling politicians' desires for over half a century. Now to track these developments, we have to go back to the 1950s and ask, what did the minority who took uh, school examinations and the even smaller minority who went on to university actually study, because that's the point at which you make subject choices. You know, you choose what exams to take and what subjects to study at university. Most people have a picture of 1950s grammar schools and universities as chock-a-block with young people studying the classics, English, and history. Unfortunately, rather backward subjects in the post-war world that desperately needed the white heat of the technological revolution to fuel its economic growth. And this picture owes a lot to C.P. Snow's polemic on the two cultures which complained at the end of the 1950s about the dominance of the arts in British culture um, and education and championed a push for more science and technology education. It also owes something to the general prevalence of a so-called declinist understanding of the British economy in the post-war years, which portrayed it as backward relative to, well, mostly to Germany. In fact, so far as education goes, the reverse was the truth. The proportion of students doing science subjects at A-level and at university was at its all-time high point around 1960. That proportion had been growing since the war 
And by the 1960s, Britain had, in the words of an OECD report, the greatest concentration on science and technology in higher education and the biggest proportion of qualified scientists and technologists in relation to population and labor force in Europe. By the end of the 1960s, that large share won by science had begun to shrink. In fact, it shrank almost continuously from a high point of about, this is the share of university degrees in sciences and humanities. Um, it shrank um, from a, uh, continuously from a high point of about 57% of all degrees uh, in 1967. Um, and actually, sorry, no, uh, in the early 1960s, I, I've got the, fir the first uh, number I have on my chart is, is 1967, but it's down to 54% already. So it's already started shrinking. Um, so it shrank from a high point of 57% of all degrees in the early 60s to a low point of 38% in 2012. And something similar happened in schools. In fact, there were more A-levels awarded in physics in absolute numbers in the 1970s than there were 30 years later, despite a huge increase in the number of taking A-levels, which is quite amazing. Why did this happen? The main drivers were the very same forces that drove the trend to widening participation in exams and education in general. As these numbers expanded, the new entrants tended to be from backgrounds with less prior education and educational experience. Science and incidentally modern languages tends to favor those who've been engaged in continuous study for longer. For those on an upward trajectory, it was easier to pick up art subjects and easier still to pick up the new subjects known as social studies, which were taught less in school and could be taken from scratch at university, whatever your background. The decline in sciences share thus followed more or less the rise in numbers. It slackened off when growth slackened off in the 70s and it accelerated when growth accelerated in the 90s. There are other factors as well, of course. Women's growing participation hit the hard sciences, though not biology. And both the general culture and the labor market, not only in Britain, but across the developed world, were less favorable to science from the 1960s onwards, more favorable to understandings of self and society. And while in fact, the number of jobs specifically requiring science and technology skills was not growing, the number of arts for which, the number of jobs for which arts and social studies degrees were acceptable, especially in the public sector, were growing very rapidly. There doesn't appear to have been a STEM skills shortage to use the current jargon at any time since the 1960s. Only about a quarter of science and technology graduates have ever ended up in science and technology jobs. Many of the rest go into management where they're in the same posts as arts and social studies graduates, though they tend to get better paid at first. In short, there were no external incentives, no labor market incentives for new entrants to higher education to choose science and technology degrees and many reasons why they would choose art subjects or increasingly the new social science subjects. Um, as you'll see from this chart, uh, art subjects retain a level share while science subjects are in decline and the margin is taken up with the growth of the social sciences, business, law and communications, the miscellaneous group that we call social studies. So we have this continuous 50 year decline in the share of the sciences. And yet over the same 50 years, politicians of all parties have been almost unanimous in their calls for more science students. When the so-called swing away from science was first detected in the 1960s, there was almost a panic in the labor government of the day. A national commission was set up to halt it, and yet the growth in higher education meant that the swing could not be halted. After a period of stagnation, as we've seen, Keith Joseph tried also to reverse the swing away from science. 
arguing not only that there were too many students in total, but that there were far too many students, students studying arts and social studies. He was particularly exercised by the social sciences like sociology, though you would have thought he would have approved of economics and business and law. But he inaugurated a new policy of government seeking to steer young people into its own favored subject choices in science and technology. And that policy has never really let up since. I've lost count of the number of reports and speeches in which government ministers try to steer more students to taking science and technology courses with all sorts of made up reasons why they should do it and why it's in their interest and why it's in their national interest, of which the latest, the Augur report came only last year and is still being mulled over. But as you'll see from my chart, the, all of these exhortations appear not to have had any effect until 2012. At that point, after 50 years, the swing finally does go into reverse. Science degrees share of the total has increased almost every year since, though not last year. And of course, two major disruptions occurred a few years before 2012, which must have had something to do with the reversal. The economic crisis of 2008, with the sustained depression of the labor market ever since, and the high fee regime of 2010, which may be changing students' attitudes to subject choice. Government propaganda has continued to pound away. The Augur report has again told us that there is a STEM skills shortage and has threatened students with fewer places or higher fees for courses of which government disapproves. So far, the politicians have not been bold enough to actually deliver on these threats, but they won't need to if student choices continue to go in their favorite direction. Now, as the swing back to science of the last seven or eight years suggests, sometimes what politicians say and do does matter, or at least it coincides with what has happened. I wouldn't want you to think I'm arguing otherwise, but I do want to argue that in the sphere of education in particular, there are also powerful social democratic and demographic trends that tend to carry politicians along in their wake, despite the rhetoric they use to rationalize their powerlessness. These trends are less palpable than acts of parliament and politician speeches, but much more powerful. And that's why we sometimes need historians to make visible longer term trends that politicians and journalists self-interestedly skip over. All too often, very short term political moves are credited with much more force than they deserve. If politics A-level numbers are rising, we say, oh, it's all due to Brexit. Politics is in the news. Kids want to study politics. But choices of subject at A-level are nearly always rooted in much longer term processes and decisions that even the teenagers themselves are barely aware of. And it's hard to attribute these really to anything that just happens to be in the newspapers or in social media in the present moment. The same applies even more so to decisions about whether to stay on in education and for how long. The demand for more and more education has been a fundamental feature of our and others' democracy for several generations now, and I don't really see it yet directly challenged by anxieties about cost either to students or to taxpayers. But that's the point I'm afraid where the historian's task ends we're not that much better at predicting the future than any other informed citizens, though I'm happy to talk about the future with you now on a level of equality, equal wisdom, or equal ignorance. Thanks very much for your attention.